Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science teleport directly into your brain. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature teleportation and quack physics. But first up, here's the news with myself, Therese Chen and Ian Wolfe. <laughs> Who would have thought it? Stilettos and the distorted way that they make you walk have actually contributed to the development of improved prosthetic legs that are more adapted to walking. It turns out that for above-the-knee amputees, it's better to use a prosthetic limb that works more like the way an ostrich moves or indeed people walking in high-heeled shoes. Putting the prosthetic ankle up high, like the position of someone's foot in a high-heeled shoe, provides more power to the prosthetic limb. Making a prosthetic limb like a normally positioned foot requires a heavy foot which is more difficult to move. This isn't to say that walking in heels is better. Normal human walking in the heel, sole, toe fashion works to minimise load to the calf muscles and muscles around the shins. Walking in high heels disrupts the load balance, leading to changes in pelvic alignment and potentially foot and lower back problems. But for prosthetic legs, less human-like feet with a raised motor or ankle allows for more natural walking, with quick short steps and relatively high speeds. For really high speeds, like sprinting, you'd need prosthetics similar to those of double amputee sprinter Oscar Pistorius. This study was published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. Harvard University has decided that academic journals are too expensive and they've joined the international journal boycott. The weekly bookseller and publisher newsletter reports that Harvard University, one of the world's richest academic institutions, has announced it can no longer afford academic journal subscriptions. Instead, they're advising staff to support open access publishing by submitting work to Digital Access to Scholarship at Harvard, or DASH, or by submitting to open access journals, or to submit their papers to ones that have reasonable, sustainable subscription costs, unlike the regular journals. Harvard's Faculty Advisory Council, in consultation with the Harvard Library leadership, sent a public memo to all faculty members. Many large journal publishers have made the scholarly communication environment fiscally unsustainable and academically restrictive, says the memo. This situation is exacerbated by the efforts of certain publishers to acquire a bundle and increase the pricing on journals. Or, in plain English, they've made things really difficult because the publishers of certain journals have required universities to not just get the journals they want, but to get big bundles of all the journals, which is usually more than they can afford. So it's all or nothing, because it's a monopoly. This memo reveals that Harvard's annual cost for academic journal subscriptions now approaches almost three and three quarter million dollars, and draws the conclusion that this can't be sustained. 
being the university with the highest endowment in the US, this decision could set a precedent for academic libraries worldwide. Recently, The Age reported that at least 110 Australian academics joined an international boycott of Elsevier, a publishing house the academics have said is charging excessive fees for access to taxpayer-funded research. Even worse, researchers actually have to pay to get their paper published. More than 9,000 academics worldwide oppose publisher charges for its journals via the Cost of Knowledge website, www.thecostofknowledge.com. The relationship between magic and science continues, with Harry Potter providing the inspiration behind the recently developed method of testing blood type. Whilst paper-based tests already exist, they often require a level of scientific expertise to diagnose correctly, which can make the difference between life and death in scenarios where rapid blood transfusions are required. With this in mind, Engineer Associate Professor Wei Shen from Monash University wished to develop a method which was more unambiguous and user-friendly. The idea came to him whilst he was watching the Chamber of Secrets. For those not well-versed with the series, Harry comes across a diary where he is able to write a question and is able to respond in writing. The movie shows that you can have a text result and that's where the idea comes from, he says. The principle behind the test remains the same, When red blood cells encounter antibodies, which are directed against their antigens, they react by clumping together or agglutinating. The device itself consists of a 2.5cm square paper coated with a hydrophobic water-repellent layer, save for four windows. These areas are shaped differently. For instance, one has the shape of the letter A, another the shape of the letter B and contain the relevant antibodies. So, for example, when a drop of blood type A fills the area of the paper containing the antibodies, the red blood cells form clumps and get stuck in the paper fibres, making the letter A visible. AB types gives red tint to both A and B shaped windows. To show an O type, which means there are no antigens, Researchers shaped the third window as the letter X and filled it with A and B reacting antibodies. They then printed a letter O in the window with a red proof with red waterproof ink. Whilst blood types A, B and AB made the X red, thereby eliminating the O type by literally crossing it out, this will disappear in the case of an O type after being rinsed with a saline solution. The fourth and last window contains antibodies against rhesus factor D. The study appears in the journal Ankh-Wanthi Kemi. Professor Shen believes that the method could also be used as a basis for other tests, including pregnancy. Diffusion Science Radio, 
send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. For extra science fun, visit our blog at www.2ser.com shows diffusion. Is teleportation possible in the real world or only in the world of science fiction? In this story, Dr. Boob takes the reins and leads us on a journey through teleportation, whether or not physics allows. And even if it does, can we technologically achieve it? What are the implications if we recreate someone in another spot? What about their soul? Does such a thing exist? And even if you can technologically achieve this, is it possible to reanimate a copy of someone? What do you do with the original version? This could be considered cloning, which brings in ethical questions. And if you're like me and you watch vintage science fiction like Blake 7, you've pondered these and more. Here's Dr. Boob. Rather than the usual science of superheroes segment, this time I'm going to take a foray into more general science fiction and we're going to take a look into the science of teleporting. Teleporting, basically the transfer of matter from one place to another more or less instantaneously. It's a pretty widely used concept in sci-fi, right from Star Trek, Doctor Who, in movies, The Fly, Jumper, and even the Harry Potter series of films. Now, let's get straight into the nitty-gritty actual science. Actual teleportation has been achieved pretty recently by the Joint Quantum Institute, or the JQI, at the University of Maryland and the University of Michigan. It's a joint institute. But they're not quite at the Star Trek transported level just yet. What they've managed to do is teleport information from one atom to another about three feet away. So we're not quite at the level of spaceship down to the planet. Anyway, so what did they actually do? Well, they used a pair of ions or charged particles and uh, what they did was they put each of these in the vacuum kept them in position with electric fields, and these are about three feet away from each other. Then using an ultra-fast laser pulse, they triggered the atom to emit photons, or both atoms simultaneously. And if these photons interact in just the right way, their parent atoms can enter a quantum state known as entanglement, in which atom B adopts the properties of atom A, even though they're in separate chambers about three feet away. So when you measure atom A, the information which has previously been encoded on it disappears in accordance with the quirky rules of the quantum world which I don't really know anything about. But all is not lost because atom B is now entangled with A. And so B contains the information that was once carried on atom A. So that information has actually been teleported. But we're talking about atoms about three feet away from each other. That's not really what we want to do. We want to do some sci-fi teleporting, some serious stuff. So what are the possibilities here? Well, there's two methods. The first of which is dematerializing. And the, uh, the easiest example of this is the transporter from Star Trek and also from the movie The Fly, fantastic Jeff Goldblum film if you ever want to see it. So basically, a whole person or an object is dematerialized and transmitted, or as Scotty would say in Star Trek, beamed as data to a receiving device and reconstructed there. 
Although in Star Trek there wasn't really a receiving device to reconstruct the person or object, they were just reconstructed at the remote location. But let's just say for the sake of this conversation that we do have a receiving device. So at f first glance, yeah, fair enough. Let's, uh, that seems feasible, I guess. But let's dig a little deeper and, and see what we can find out. So step one in the process, I guess, would be scanning the person to be transported. So in effect, we'd be converting a person, a living, breathing person, into data for transmission. So I'm imagining some sort of hotted up version of a CAT scan here with some serious high resolution images of the body. But in this instance, you'd really need to go that step further and get, you know, atomic scale resolution of the human body, or possibly even subatomic. So really what you're looking at is you need enough precision with each scan for rematerializing. It's actually been calculated how much information storage is required. So uh, some wacky scientists worked out that 2.0057742 times 10 to the power of 45 bits is the number of bits of information required to perfectly recreate the average sized adult male human down to the quantum level on a computer. So basically 2 times 10 to the power of 45 bits. Uh, and now to put that in a bit of context, uh, one terabyte, you might have a, a hard drive with one terabyte storage on it, and that's about 10 to the power of 12 bits. So you'd need quite a few. So let's, let, let's assume that we've managed to convert our person to data. Then, interestingly enough, we could make some copies. Now that, to me, kind of fits the definition of human cloning, which is of course illegal and unethical and not condoned by anyone affiliated with the Mr. Science show. But then there's a few other things going on here as well. What happens if I'm a bit of a klutz and I accidentally delete this digital entity? Does that make me a murderer? Or does that depend on whether the digital form has already been reconverted, rematerialized into a person or not? Now we're going to send our digital copy from place A to place B. Well, that seems pretty fair enough. I mean, we've been managing to transfer information from place A to B through radio waves, microwaves, etc. for some time now. So I think we're fairly comfortable with that part of the process. So let's move on to rematerializing. And for this, I think we're going to need a really funky version of a 3D printer or something quite similar. So 3D printers are already commercially available, but they're a little limited for our purposes. Uh, at the moment, it tends to be just plastics, metals, easily workable metals, of course, or plaster as the, the template which a 3D printer can, can put together. And the human body is a little more complicated in terms of ingredients. And yes, okay, it's mostly water, but there's a lot of kind of fancy stuff in there as well. And if you're rematerializing an entire person, you're going to need every single cell to be made and everything inside a cell, like membranes, proteins, DNA, RNA. Everything's need, going to need to be put together to order in the same location, in the same state it was when it was scanned in. So this is a pretty uh, super duper 3D printer we're going to require. And 
The other thing is, I think it's going to have to work pretty quick. I don't imagine that if you started at the feet and then took three hours to get to the hips that the feet are going to be doing too well because you've got another few hours before you reach the heart and you can get some, some blood pumping but then you can't really start the heart until you've got a complete circulatory system. So yeah, there's going to be some issues there. It's going to have to work pretty quick. So just building on that point a little bit, what happens you know, if you rematerialize the body, does that actually mean reanimation? In terms of you know, atomic composition, there's not a great deal of difference between a dead body and a living body, depending on the cause of death, obviously. But what we've assumed to this point is that the heart will beat again and the neurons will start firing up and everything will be just naturally going as it was before. And the other big assumption, I think, is that when we reassemble all the neurons and their connections to the appropriate neurons, that will, in fact, reassemble the memories and the personality of our person to be transported. Can, can our personality really be defined by connections between neurons? I guess, technically, maybe that is true. But then we're talking about someone's soul as well, aren't we? Yeah, it's a bit bit of a grey area, this one. So let's just move on and not make any assumptions that, other than our 3D printer, which has been hotted up, works pretty well, and we can materialise a perfect copy, personality, memory, everything, just as it was before. It's reanimated fine, and it's all good. So we've managed to scan person in room A and convert them to data, send them off into room B, and make a perfect copy and it's happily working and functioning. Hang on a second. We've still got the original person in room A. You know, they're just standing there hanging out, they've just been scanned, and all of a sudden we've got two of them. So, what are we gonna do now? Do we dispose of the original? I mean, we've already talked that duplicating someone is, well, it's illegal. So what do we do with the original, you know? Is it murder if the person is still alive? Hmm. Perhaps people should uh, see another movie, The Prestige, um, if you haven't. Have a look at that. But while we were, I was uh, mulling over these ideas, I had, a, I had a thought about continuity of existence in terms of, let's say, we're going on a space trip and we're going to hang out around Alpha Centauri a while. Now that's a few light years travel away. So what about if we scan ourselves in, convert ourselves to a nice little digital copy, put ourselves on a flash drive, an enormous flash drive with two times 10 to the power of 45 space, and then put the flash drive on the spaceship, put it on cruise control and away you go and then when you're getting close to the destination, whoop, pop in the flash drive, reassemble yourself, and then you're good to go. That was Dr. Boob, a.k.a. Dr. Chris Pettigrew, taking us on an ethical and technological journey through teleportation. I, for one, won't be signing up for teleportation until we've solved some of those ethical issues, not to mention the technological ones. <laughs> Pigs 
used to be the size of rhinos Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, yeah, deal with that The moon is moving away from the earth by four centimetres a year when it's gone we are all well and truly buggered oh, It's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, so deal with that Blue whales are bloody massive Their tongues weigh as much as an elephant Its heart is the size of a car And some of its blood vessels are so wide That you could swim down them Oh, it's a fact, so you deal with that It's a fact, so deal with that your average pillow, about six years old, is made up from one tenth of skin, living mites, dead mites, and mite dung. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Next up, we delved into the archives to bring you this quacking good diffusion classic. Have you ever heard the myth that a duck's quack doesn't echo? Ian Wolfe explores the physics behind this familiar farmyard sound. A duck's quack doesn't echo, says the guy at the pub. And then his eyes get very big and he says, and nobody knows why. The riddle is that it isn't true, it's widely believed, but it's not a myth because there is some reality behind it. How can this be? The answer is, it's an illusion. Fooling the ear this way takes us into the auditory illusion world of psychoacoustics. Psychoacoustics, by analysing the way our ears and brains are fooled, has led to the development of MP3 and other sound file compression techniques that work by throwing away the 80% that you just won't notice is gone. It's also being used to provide surround sound from just two speakers and a whole range of useful tricks. An echo is a reflection of sound from a surface, just like the reflection of light from a mirror, and heard by the listener sometime after the original sound. For example, the echo reflected off Timmy down the well, or by the walls of a room, or the side of a cliff. A true echo is a single reflection of the sound source. If the surface you're reflecting the sound from is less than 16 metres away, then your ear won't hear the echo. This is because the delay between the original sound and the reflected sound isn't big enough for you to be able to tell the difference. If so many echoes are heard by a listener that they aren't able to tell the difference between them and they just blur together, then they're called reverberation. To eliminate echoes, some performance venues use sound absorbers called diffusers. An anechoic chamber is full of wedges of sound-absorbing diffusers to soak up the extra sound and has no echoes at all. It's a strange experience to stand in one because it's an environment like nothing else you experience in normal life. It gets really quiet really quickly. The University of Salford's Acoustic Research Centre got Daisy the Duck into their acoustics laboratory for the British Association Festival of Science to do the ultimate tests. First, they put her in an anechoic chamber just to hear the unadulterated quack, the real thing, without reflections. No, a duck without reflections is not a vampire. Daisy was just a sitting duck. For the ultimate test of the facts, they put Daisy in a reverberation chamber to hear if she echoes when she quacks. If there are sounds that don't echo, then this would have technological applications. 
There's a video of the experiments on the Salford University Acoustics website at www.acoustics.salford.ac.uk. It's a duct tape. With a cathedral-like chamber to bounce the sound off, did Daisy's quack echo? I think I hear the sound of a mistaken belief disappearing. Of course, most people's experience of echoes comes from yelling at a cliff, yet ducks rarely fly anywhere near a cliff. So the researchers had to get more creative to give people what they find more intuitive. Having proved that a duck's quack does echo, they felt free to play with an electronics effects box to help us imagine the duck flying past the side of a cliff 50 metres away. Now, listen carefully, and I think you'll hear how this myth started. Now, listen again to the ordinary quack, and then the quack with one echo. Could you hear the difference? It's very subtle. The duck's quack is quiet, and is not one loud sound like a yell, but sort of a quack, where the second part of the sound can be confused with the echo from the first part. It could be hard to tell the two sounds apart, but to claim that there is no echo is just quackery. You can see Daisy in the Acoustics Labs at www.acoustics.salford.ac.uk. Daisy lives at Stockley Farm in Cheshire, where she graciously accepts visitors by appointment. Duck's quacks do echo. It's a fact, so deal with that. That was Ian Wolfe talking about the duck and the physics behind its quack. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Do you have a science question that's bugging you? Email your science questions and stories to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com, and our scientists will do our best to find the answer and feature it on a future episode. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live elsewhere and have a story you would like to contribute, send us an email on diffusion at 2ser.com. For further information on this week's show, visit our blog at www.2ser.com slash shows slash diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen, Ian Wolfe and Chris Pettigrew. Diffusion has been produced by me in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next time on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound www.diffusionradio.com <coughs>